0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usine, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall.
1: All right, welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's business radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And my good friends, co-hosts, colleagues, just buddies, Ann Greenhall and Mike seem, they both had the night off. Um, so this is the part of the show where I would normally uh, heckle Mike for a little while, and we'll just have to reserve that um, Patty and Dion, if we could just make a note that we'll give Mike a double dose of heckling the next time he's on the show. All right, fantastic. Um, and, and again, you know, I'm also excited, as much as I enjoy the heckling, um, I'm really excited to just save a little bit of extra time for the conversation that we have planned uh, this evening. And that is uh, a conversation with Mary Ellen Iskandarian, who is the president and CEO of Women's World Banking. Um, she is on campus... To speak as part of a public policy and practice series, which is hosted at the University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute of Government. Uh, she's spending some time here at the Wharton School as well, meeting uh, with our Wharton women in business. Um, and Mary Ellen is really a, a longtime friend of the Wharton School and and I have a feeling we'll we'll get into some of that friendship over the course of our time um, in the studio here. So, uh, Mary Ellen, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much, Jeff. It's great to be here.
1: All right. Um, Let me say a couple words about you and about Women's World Banking, and then um, we can kind of dive into this interview. So, um, first to start out, Women's World Banking is a global nonprofit that works to give low-income women access to the financial tools they need to achieve security and prosperity. And Mary Ellen... um, you have been with uh, women's World Bank I think since 2006 yeah is that right yes
0: 13 years All right. ah.
1: that's about my tenure with uh, the Wharton School as okay. well so um, be interested if we charted our paths if, if we hit the obstacles at the same time or not right <laughs> um, the uh, let's see so you remember the investment committee um, also at women's World Banking. Um, and then prior to Women's World Banking, you had uh, a career at the International Finance Corporation. Um, you also worked for Lehman Brothers. Yep. Um And in the world, you are a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, um, a member of the Women's Forum of New York and the Business and Sustainable Development Commission. Exactly. And you have wonderful education. And we'll talk about all of this kind of stuff. Um but to bring your voice into the conversation, a way I often like to start these um, these interviews, you know, you've arrived at the place you are now and you have a full life and a full job and everything else. Um, and, and I think part of this is uh, it's informed by the work that Anne and Mike and I do with undergraduates. If we went back and and you did your undergraduate work at Georgetown? Yes. Is that yes, right? School school board service. Um, if we talked to Mary Ellen, you know, last year of high school, first year at Georgetown. Um, What did that Mary Ellen think this Mary Ellen would be doing?
0: Oh, an interesting question. I mean, sometimes I think that I'm maybe not a very creative person because Mm -hmm. I'm actually doing an awful lot now of what I had always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I think... You know, I had gone to the Georgetown um, University School of Foreign Service and I made that choice very explicitly because mm-hmm. I had this idea of a foreign service career. Okay. And um, so I think, you know, perhaps, you know, last year of high school, Mary Ellen um, would have thought she would be, you know, sort of a career mm-hmm. in the foreign service. Um, I had the incredible good fortune of doing a Year-long internship at the State Department. My junior year. In fact, I I took time off while people went off to do junior year abroad. Mm-hmm. I went across the Potomac River to the to the State Department, and
1: which some can also describe as a, uh, a foreign experience. Foreign yeah. experience, exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. And I, what I saw, really, and maybe uh, maybe not a great thing to to point out, but it really did seem at the time that people who were bringing outside experiences to international relations to mm-hmm. the way we were conducting foreign policy and mm-hmm. and hadn't just sort of come up through the foreign service really did seem to have a broader Um, a broader perspective. Mm -hmm. um, And and definitely in the areas I wanted to work in, which was international development, Mm -hmm. those people who had worked in the private sector just really seemed to have a very, very different perspective. Now, granted, this was the Reagan era, so perhaps that private sector Mm -hmm. element of foreign policy was particularly uh, evident. But I... I kind of learned that at the time and applied it and, and very much still believe that, that that, that broader perspective, um, more rounded view mm-hmm. of policy has really um, served me well. And and what
1: what was drawing you to work in international relations to a possible foreign service career? I mean, what what were some of the early seeds or early people that that inspired you to that kind of work?
0: Um, so I was sharing some of this with the the fells um, policy students uh, earlier today. but um my my father comes from or came from Turkey. He's unfortunately uh-huh. no longer living. And we would go back to visit his family every year. And Turkey was a much poorer country than it is uh, it is today. But I was s- just so, shocked to see, you know, children my age and my brothers and sisters' age, you know, basically living on the street, Mm -hmm. you know, begging. And it wasn't so much just seeing that poverty, but frankly seeing my father's family so inured to it, so able to just walk on by. And it was so stunning to me that I think very, very early on, this idea of not wanting to be a person who could walk by yeah. um really informed, you know, sort of the, the, the path I then followed.
1: Got it. And so so you enroll at Georgetown and and you are studying international economics. Um we've 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 noted that you you spent the uh, the time your junior year at the State Department um, is your first job out of Georgetown at Lehman Brothers.
0: No, I was a I was a foreign exchange trader at the Bank of America. My first job, okay. and um, my family is is still to this day convinced that all i learned there was how to swear really really well (laughs) on a trading floor um a skill that remains to this Uh, day did you add some turkish swears (laughs) 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 right i'm a polyglot swearer um but um so that was my first job um and what drew you to that
1: I mean, that That is a fast paced, yeah. um, lots of, you know, sensory stimulation yeah. kind of. Well, I, kind of you work. know, I
0: got into their training program, which yeah. was, you know, it was sort of that was where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to a big commercial bank training program. Um, a few years later, actually 20 years later, I met um, Sam Armacost, who was the president of uh, Bank of America at the time at, at an event and. You know, I'm gushing all over him about how much I learned at my first job, and he said, "I am so sick and tired of people coming up and telling me they got their careers started at Bank of America." I was like, <laughs> "Okay, won't, won't tell you that any- anymore." But it um, it was terrific to get into that training program, mm-hmm. and when we did the rotation on the trading floor, it just it really drew my attention, and I I managed to worm my way onto a really cool desk on the trading floor Mm -hmm. that was taking, um, you know, blocked currencies and currencies that didn't have a lot of trading, many of which, um, you know, corporations desperately needed in in order Mm -hmm. to settle or were sitting on, on big balances. And so we sort of did swaps between two corporates and i just really the creativity of finance the creativity of you know foreign markets i knew you know to the hour what the price of tea in sri lanka was because lipton was a client that we had to make sure they Mm -hmm. had had currency available um was just so fascinating and and really just a lot of fun
1: And and for you, looking back, when was when was the time where you were starting to think to yourself? All right, I've learned a lot here. And there are other things I'm going to do kind of how does that realization hit you? And where do you start to look from there?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I, I, I had an inkling that I, I, if nothing else, I needed more more technical skills, uh-huh. and the currency markets were getting so much more advanced and complicated. I mean, swaps were brand brand new when okay. I got to the trading floor, and so I did. I I wanted more of mm-hmm. the of the technical skills, but I also thought that um, I wanted to to be engaged with companies on a broader level than just that, you know, Mm -hmm. transactional Mm -hmm. nature. But then I still had that, you know, that service mentality and that going back to, you know, government service or, mm-hmm. or international development was always sort of in the in the back of my mind. So when I was looking at um, graduate education, um, you know, the kinds of programs we see today, you know, l- like here, the, the, the joint degrees that are possible, yeah. you know, the Kennedy School was still, you know, pretty new at the mm-hmm. time. Um, the Yale School of Management seemed to be really about training leaders for private sector, public sector, nonprofit sector, and Mm -hmm. I had sort of envisioned a career that really could uh, cross all of those different sectors, and so the the program really spoke to me, and so I was, you know, delighted to head up to New Haven. All right.
1: Um, Let me remind our listeners, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and my guest is Mary Ellen Iskandarian, who is the president and CEO of Women's World Banking. Um, did you go into your MBA with with specific goals in terms of the kinds of either the kinds of skills that you wanted to uh, develop or the kinds of industries and sectors that you wanted to get more familiar with?
0: Uh, so, as I said, you know, some yeah. of those those harder finance technical skills that I hadn't really because I I don't even think I. Took a finance class. Now that I think about it, uh, as an undergrad, it really right. was much more the the heavier because um, I had I did sort of a double concentration on both international economics and development economics. Uh-huh. So I didn't really have have the finance piece. So I really doubled down, and and uh, Yale hired away a ton of uh, Chicago economists just <laughs> as I got there. So I got I got a heavy dose of uh, of of the finance. Right. I also um, because I'd had the trading. Uh, floor experience, I I was really glad that I got some real sense of trade economics and mm-hmm. how international trade kind of actually works, and mm-hmm. not just that uh, that transactional side of it that I I had been exposed to. You know, I also saw that um, you know. At the time, the investment banks and the consulting firms were sort of the the big, cons- um, you know, recruiting options that one had. They still are.
1: They still come to campus frequently. Yeah,
0: And so my, um, my first summer, I had – I just feel like I got so fortunate. I got a uh, summer – associate's position at the i guess another dearly departed uh, investment bank uh, csfb mm-hmm. and I, i'm not even sure how this happened but a, you know there were a whole lot of privatizations that were taking place in in western europe mm-hmm. so i spent most of the summer in spain and greece and mm. you know pitching these privatizations to you know large state owned banks and you know really seeing uh, I, at the time, I thought, you know, sort of what that uh, an international career could could be, um, but with that that solid banking experience. And then, when I, you know, was looking for my job, first job out of out of school, Lehman was really the only one of the f- the investment banks that was open to more of an international career. And they had a, a, a they were part of a, an amazing practice that. Um, that doesn't really exist anymore. They they together with um, Lazard and Warburg mm-hmm. had this group that was called the Troika mm-hmm. um, that provided financial advice and um, and, and consulting to governments, mostly developing country governments, when they sat down with the IMF or the World Bank. So they were Mm -hmm. sort of bankers on the sides of those the developing countries. Mm -hmm. And I, again, was very fortunate to be able to work on some of those deals and, again, sort of started seeing what development looked like um, from a very different perspective, but but, um, using banking skills on, on behalf of those countries that I was so keen to see succeed. I'm
1: uh, managing my own curiosities actively here because there, <laughs> there's so much I want to ask you about, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, the private sector and government and nonprofit were interacting then and, and what's changed over time. And I, I swear we'll get there, but I have to <laughs> not everyone likes my tangents, So um, we'll we'll stay on point for a second here. So so give me a sense then Um you know, first, this work that you're talking about with Lehman Brothers, then um, the work that you do at um, the IFC, the International Finance Corporation. Um, what was what was really memorable? What was special about that? Um, and and what were you learning that was going to really set you up to step into the, the kinds of roles that you've played at Women's World Banking?
0: Um- so I was very fortunate to be accepted into the World Bank's Young Professionals Program and mm-hmm. I and I say that largely as an American they tend not to take that many Americans and within 4 months of my joining um the Berlin Wall came down and the fact that I'd had the Wall Street experience mm-hmm. um really you know the, the bank was floundering frankly looking mm-hmm. for people who you know had some sense of how the capital markets actually worked um that that had real world banking experience and so i spent the next eight years working on literally cre- re- creating recreating and recreating um financial institutions financial systems first yeah. in central and eastern europe and then moving into the former soviet union and it was it was an extraordinary period of being very very conscious the whole time that uh, particularly in the central europe phase that this was a unique moment in history they were not going to mm-hmm. need our help in setting up stock exchanges um I worked on the first um, initial public offering done in Poland after mm-hmm. communism, and I always like to, to tell the story that the the Poles had been quite intent that the stock exchange had to be located in the building where the KGB headquarters had been mm-hmm. before, as a you know a very explicit thumbing the nose uh, and recognizing capitalism. So it was. Just an extraordinary uh, time. But I think my greatest regret, and you know, maybe this is my Catholic upbringing, but I still feel I'm sort of paying a bit of penance in that in all of those banks, I got very engaged in microfinance in Eastern Europe, all those microfinance institutions. I never once asked a banker or a fund manager, how much money are you lending to women? How many right. deposit- of your depositors are women? I just really didn't do that part of my job. And I sometimes wonder what the Board of Women's World Banking saw in me because they did take a chance when they hired me. I didn't really have particular, you know women's empowerment credentials, Uh so to speak. But you don't have to be in our business very long. I think, you know, the first trip I took to the field, it becomes so clear that in the markets we're working in that women Carry the resilience of the economy. They are sure. what is educating and keeping families healthy and having communities thrive. And realizing the role that finance. Yeah. could play in in sort of turbocharging what women were doing anyway mm-hmm. really became you know became my passion and my mission and now I can't see anything without seeing the gender implications of right. it but I I confess I didn't bring that in my development career at the World Bank that's
1: it. and when you say you didn't bring is that you know um, I have a mentor who likes to talk a lot about you know different lenses and the ways that we use different lenses to understand the problem is is it a lens that you hadn't had access to yet Um, or is it something else that um, is is it something else in terms of um, the way in which you were brought up to take up take up the work and take up the role
0: it's an interesting question I I think it's probably more the former. I think it's Uh probably more that, that lens of, of approaching the problem. Although I do think, you know, when you're, when you're at a World Bank organization, even the IFC, which is devoted to the private sector, you, you are sort of led to think at a more macro level. Um, you know, I often thought, you know, one of the first trips I took to, um, to Africa and I met this amazing client that, that, of the, uh, of the partner uh, mm-hmm. institution we were working with, a woman who stays t- to my mind, you know, to this day, she um, she was running a very thriving hardware business mm-hmm. in a village not far from Mombasa, which is the second largest city in, in Kenya. And, you know, she showed me the, the earlier version of her business, which was this sort of uh, little... Shack on the side of a road that she called a hardware store and there were a couple of two-by-fours and some nails and tomatoes and eggs. Um, and mm-hmm. that was her hardware business. Um, but she, uh, through word of mouth, heard about this organization, Kenyon Women's Finance Trust, which was our partner. Um, and they took a chance on her. They gave her some training, some budgeting and accounting um, background and a $70 loan. Mm-hmm. And when I met her, she was now... Um, had a, you know, sort of a revolving line of credit of $3,000. She had built a very proper um, hardware business. She had 26 employees and was very proud that her 26th employee was her husband, mm-hmm. who had actually had to leave their village because he couldn't get work. And he'd gone to Mombasa and was a, was a policeman and was sending money home. But the business was growing at such a rate that he came home. She was educating all of her kids through secondary school at that time, and she had put her um, younger sister through graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that I was even meeting her and, and engaging with her at that level, I probably wouldn't have even left Nairobi if I yeah. were with the World Bank. You know, right. if we were lending to Kenya Women's, that was their headquarters, I would have done my business. And mm-hmm. And probably never made that next step. And that woman literally transformed the way I think about our, our work. So sure. it was. So I think it's a, a piece of, of both of uh, of your hypotheses.
1: So um, this is Leadership in Action. It's Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Klein. My guest is Mary Ellen Iskandarian, who is the president, CEO of Women's World Banking. And the conversation we're having, We we've been... Kind of charting Mary Ellen's uh, journey, which I, I'm just always fascinated about about the journeys we take and the unintentional and, and intentional parts of those. Um, and, and now we're really starting to dive into the work that um, that you're doing and that that Women's World Banking is is doing and supporting globally. So, um, for our listeners, if you could just give us a sense of Women's World Banking as, as an organization and the ways in which it's working around the world.
0: Mm. Love to, nothing I like talking about more. Um,
1: <laughs> I had a feeling that's what we call a softball. <laughs>
0: so, so women's more banking actually sort of started uh, life 40 years ago. This is our mm-hmm. 40th anniversary year, um, supporting microfinance institutions that were um, initially not only serving women clients but led by by women. Mm -hmm. Um, That's expanded quite a bit over the next few years um, with the recognition that, you know, men leaders could be very supportive of women clients as well. And Mm -hmm. so we really wanted to be building that institutional strength. But I'd say in the last decade or so, particularly as digital technology has really exploded and, and is the way we will be bringing the billions of people who do not have access to financial services into the, the, mm-hmm. the financial system, um, the partners that we've engaged with has gone way beyond microfinance institutions. And so today, we're, you know, I, at any given, I, in fact, I know this, uh, my team just told me the other day, we have 46 active projects. And the partners that we're working with in the developing world, while Yes, are still microfinance institutions, lots of mobile money providers and telcos, mainstream banks, insurance companies, an increasing number of fintechs, Mm -hmm. retailers, fast-moving consumer goods companies that want to provide financing to low-income women in their supply chains. There's such a plethora Mm -hmm. of partners that we can be doing work with where we either help them design products that – can serve that population, mm-hmm. or maybe even more often now is we're we're optimizing a product that perhaps you know is working for low income men but not mm-hmm. reaching l- low income women and mm-hmm. the marketing of it and some of the product attributes need to be worked on. Um, The second thing we do, and we do part of this in conjunction with with the Wharton School, is there's a very well-documented link between having women in governance positions, leadership positions, Mm -hmm. management staff, you know, throughout a financial institution, and that institution's outreach to women clients. Mm -hmm. And so we've had for many years, but I think the current iteration um, of our Women in Leadership program is is probably the most effective, where we're bringing – a senior executive mm-hmm. uh, more often than not a man mm-hmm. um, and we pair him with or he chooses really a high potential woman in his organization. The two of them go through a nine-month training program that we are honored to co-deliver with right. uh, with Wharton faculty. Um, and during that period, they work on what we call a strategic business initiative mm-hmm. that identifies something that can either improve gender diversity within the organization or uh, outreach to women clients. And it has not only had some amazing results in terms of women you know, climbing the ladder within those organizations after going through the the program, and we even now have a couple of women who've gone through the program and risen risen to CEO in their organizations. But that outreach to women, mm-hmm. the increase in women clients, and products that are offered to those women as a result of the the program um, is really pretty spectacular. And then our third line of business, um, you alluded to in in the introduction, is. Uh, about eight years ago, we discovered a trend that we were really concerned about initially in the microfinance space. But we found that when microfinance institutions made the leap from nonprofit or NGO organizations and became registered financial institutions, mm-hmm. you know, became do- deposit taking, you know, fully fledged um, financial institutions. Uh, you had a huge drop-off in women clients and a bloodbath in women's leadership. Mm. And we decided, and I'm always so grateful that my board backed this decision, that we would become an investor whose whole... Um, thesis Mm -hmm. was that this was an institution that was doing really, really well with women in leadership and serving women clients. Just because you've brought in outside capital and you're changing Mm -hmm. into a a for-profit model doesn't mean you have to leave that previous model behind. Mm -hmm. And so we raised $50 million, hardest money I have ever raised in my life, um, invested in 10 um, finan- financial institutions. Um, eight of them were sort of explicitly microfinance institutions. Um, another two was a one is a non bank, um, small and medium sized enterprise lender in Jordan. Mm-hmm. And then the 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 final is actually a, a listed bank in Tanzania, but that has a very large outreach to um, to low income women. And we felt we could make a difference um, even with a fairly small stake. Um, We've had one very successful exit through an i p o in India, mm-hmm. and we're now in the market raising our second fund, which we hope will be you know we're we're targeting at least a hundred million for that, and the fundraising for that is looking pretty good,
1: wow, so it's kind of a big job you've got. <laughs> I like to <laughs> that's think the, so. <laughs> that's the first reaction I'm going to have um, as, as I kind of think across all of these things. And you know, something I'm really appreciating um, you know, in the way that you're describing the work and really these, these you know, strategic areas of focus that Women's World Banking has is there, there is an aspect, which is, you know, pardon my borrowing of the, the term, but, but at a very micro level, Right. And then there's a lot that's really happening at, at the macro as well. And I, I just couldn't I, I think, you know, I was just jotting notes down as you were describing the work. Um, and so much so much of it seems to be about the ecosystem. Right. And about, you know, the, there are so many different ways to enter the ecosystem um, and, and the direct actions and the ripple effect of those actions, um, you know, the change that you you ultimately seek in the world. How, I mean, how how do you put that at the kind of grandest, highest level, um, knowing that all of these different um, uh, initiatives that you're talking about are are all supporting it?
0: Thank you so much for for asking that because that the underpinning of those three sort of explicit lines of business. Is, is really advocacy. And yeah. everything that we're learning, either through our investments or through the, the Women's Leadership Program or um, through that that solutions-based work that mm-hmm. we're doing, we are trying very, very hard to get out to the broadest um, audience possible. Mm-hmm. We made a, what was a bit of a controversial decision within Women's World Banking, but we decided to really focus on priority markets. And so... We are working in the six countries where more than 50 percent of the world's unbanked women live because we're really trying to to make the biggest impact possible. And we're doing a lot more policy work. Um, In fact, um, just yesterday I was at the University of Michigan um, speaking at a conference called the Central Bank of the Future. And I was – I was really delighted that you know anybody was thinking that the central bank of the future you know should be thinking about some of the things mm-hmm. that um, that we're engaged in, but it's it's so clear that you know things like you know forty five percent of women in low income and middle income countries have no identification, right. in an mm-hmm. appalling number of countries, live girls births are mm-hmm. not even registered. You can't get you can't open a bank account you can't get a sim card for your phone you can't get anything without mm-hmm. identification and so making it you know making it clear to those regulators how policy is not gender blind policy yeah. does affect different citizens Differently and kind of trying to wake them up to that fact was a, a you know, was a wonderful opportunity. Yesterday, but is very much as you say, you know, that's sort of the grandest level that we're we're trying to work at.
1: Um, I know that you know you've led a big change effort uh, at Women's World Banking, and and I wonder um, if you can tell us a little bit about that, um, and maybe any surprises. Uh, that that surfaced along the way as as you took a look at at strategy and impact.
0: No, I I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I'm sort of living that day to day right now. <laughs> um, so, Women's World Banking has been very fortunate over the years that we have a few really committed funders who mm-hmm. will fund our um, entire strategic plan. So they're not saying I mean, sure. we'll only support you know girls. Uh, savings in Rwanda. They'll support right. everything we're doing. And,
1: and you said earlier that you've just hit your 40th yes. anniversary as an yes. organization. Yes. Okay. So you have some track record. We with do.
0: These. We do. And And some of these funders, you know, sort of date back almost to our to our beginnings. But they hold us to a pretty, you know, high bar Mm -hmm. in terms of that strategic planning process and what our objectives are. And so we take that strategic planning process really seriously. And at the end of our last three-year plan, we were very, very proud of the fact Mm -hmm. that we had reached um, 3.2 million people with a product or service to which they had never had previous access to, um, and 2.1 million of those were women. Mm-hmm. Um, we now know a couple years later, over the five-year period, we actually reached a total of 5 million people with the products that we had done over that um, that that time frame, and just a hair over 50 percent of them were, were women. And so that is amazing, and we're really, really proud of that. But – we realized that when you put that number as proud of it as we are next to the you know billion yeah. literally billion women yeah. who have no access to financial services and you probably can add close to another billion when mm-hmm. you take you know insufficient or or uh, you know the full suite of services that they really need mm-hmm. um, to be full economic citizens it was just a drop in the bucket mm-hmm. so we put a strategy into place that I was talking a bit about earlier about, you know, defining um, specific priority markets and being much clearer about what the systemic problems in an organization uh, systemic problems in a, in an economy might be, and then how do we address that in an organization. We're, we're much sort of stricter with the companies that we work with, particularly those that we're bringing grant funding to, mm-hmm. that um, they have to be willing to share with others in the market. We mm-hmm. give them a first-mover advantage for six months, but then they need to know that we're going to be sharing what we're learning mm-hmm. in the economy much much more broadly. And so the, the surprise for me was that um, – You know, we were looking to fix a model that was working just fine, and I had incredibly capable, talented people who made enormous changes in the organizations they were working with. We just wanted to do more, and Mm -hmm. we wanted to do bigger, Mm -hmm. and I don't think I had expected – driving change when things aren't really that broken right. would be so hard. Mm-hmm. And um, and it has been because we've needed to, uh, you know, some people have left us that mm-hmm. have been with us for a long, long time because they really felt strongly about the previous model. Um, we've had to really ramp up that. You know, the policy, advocacy, communications piece that we'd always done, but we hadn't really been do- doing it in a very deliberate mm-hmm. way or with people who had some of those skills. And and happily, we're, you know, we're the only NGO that actually sits on the the sort of governing area within the G20 on financial inclusion. And so we're very welcome at a mm-hmm. lot of these tables. And so we need to have, you know, people who can, can make our case and and perhaps those weren't really the folks that we had on on board for, uh, for a for a lot of the organization's history. Yeah.
1: And so, how did you know? A, a, as you assess something going well, and then set a higher bar in terms of um, impact, and, and realize the trajectory of where you are right now and the way that you're doing things probably won't get you to that higher bar. That that's kind of part of what I'm hearing here. Um, where do you start in that process? Do you start with um, building the the kind of network of allies? Do you start by saying, nope, I, I know what the new model needs to be, and so let me dive into that? I mean, what's, what was sort of step one on day one after you accepted, like, this is the work I'm going to do for mm-hmm. the next number of years?
0: So I think it was really taking an inventory of of what what we had and, you know, what we could grow internally, what we needed to recruit externally. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I said that you were I I know that you said you were going to be heckling Mike Yusim for not being here. I actually have to give him an enormous amount of credit. Mike um, has been on the Women's World Banking Board for a number of years. And literally the day we met 13 years ago, he said to me. That when you're making changes, you need to communicate so frequently, so often saying the same thing. You have to be at the point, and these are the words he used, you have to be at the point at which you want to put a gun to your own head because you're so sick of hearing the message, mm-hmm. and that's the point at which you know your staff has heard you. And I think if I look back on, on anything that I, I felt I was doing, because mm-hmm. Mike's uh, very graphic advice st- stuck in my mind, I still probably could have communicated more. Right. And so explaining why we were doing what we were doing, w- where it would take the organism that we hadn't been able to get to before and how much we wanted everybody to come along with us mm-hmm. um, you know I, I can't underestimate how important that that has been and if any if I've been you know making up for lost time in mm-hmm. the year that we've been implementing the strategy it would be uh, it would be around the, the communications and I think we've gotten a lot better I think we've recognized that um, communication, needs to be at every level of of the organization and that sometimes the you know the the most skeptical people within the organization if you can turn them around and yeah. then let them be your advocates way more powerful than the ceo making yet another another speech
1: it, it's funny i i flash back to a, a course I was leading, um, probably going back about 10 years, and and we were talking about communication in the course, and we had, um, you know, we had an older gentleman who was one of the participants in this week-long executive course, um, and he'd been a, a really, vo- you know, we're about halfway through the course, he'd been a really vocal participant um, up until that moment, and we're talking about communications, and, and I looked over, um, and, you know, speaking of nonverbal communications, I could tell, like, something just landed on him. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew his, his you know, the facial expression, the way he's holding his body, you know, there's this, something had happened. And so I waited until we got to the break and I walked up to him and I said, um, his name is Harvey. I said, um, Harvey, um, wh- like what happened there? Like I watched something happen and he said, I just had the biggest epiphany. And I was like, uh, okay, what was the epiphany? He said, when you say communication, you're not, just, you're not just referring to me talking, you're referring to what people hear as well. Fascinating. Yeah. Right? And it was like this, you know, kind of... But it, it also, the way he put it, right, has always stayed with me, you know? And, and I, I wonder um, what you learned along the way about the difference between what it is you know you're saying and then what people are, are leaving with and really um, talking about later. Right is is there a way to sort of understand what clicked and what where the gaps were?
0: Wow, this is a, this is a hard one. I think the one thing I guess that has that you know, and I and I'm a huge Jim Collins fan <laughs> and I do think that the, you know, good to great for the social sector is a brilliant little book. Um I got in a lot of trouble for saying something that was heard as are you or are you not on the bus? Mm. And that wasn't what I was saying. Mm-hmm. I was, I was trying to communicate that this was the direction we were going. I was trying to communicate mm-hmm. leadership and clarity. And it was almost as if people were finishing my sentence as, "And if you're not on the bus, we're still we're right. still going." Right. And so that I think was probably one of the biggest. That's, uh, that's Distances really inter- yeah. between what I said and what was heard.
1: Yeah, and well, I would also imagine. Um, and speaking about what, speaking of what I'm supposed to say, let me pause for a second <laughs> and just say, I'm Jeff Klein, and you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. Uh, I'm here in the studio with Mary Ellen Iskandarian, who is the president and CEO of Wounds World Banking, uh, and right now we're talking about leading change um, and. and and I'm going to up the ante on leading change a little bit because, you know, it, it strikes me that the communication that you need to do, it's, it's not just internally to the employees of Women's World Banking. I mean, you talked before about having four, 46 active partners, right? And then you talked about the three-year plan and and really impacting, you know, 5 million people over five years with new products and services. So, I mean, how – How did you conceive of like where this communication needs to reach and how much tailoring has to happen depending on um, the particular kind of stakeholder or constituent um, that you're talking to?
0: We did a a lot of thinking through on who our stakeholders are and and how to communicate um, to them. I think, um, you know a little bit of tooting my own horn, perhaps um, last week was UN General Assembly Week, which is just, you know, a horrible week to be in New York. But we um, had a, a wonderful uh, breakfast conversation with some of, some of our stakeholders. And one of those funders that I mentioned that's been so supportive of our, our strategic planning um, gave a, a very nice little, little talk. But the one thing she called out that just meant so much to me is mm-hmm. that, one of the reasons they've stayed with us is the recognition of evolution and the mm-hmm. and our realizing that we have to stay ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. That we've been able to evolve over, you know, the decades they've been supporting mm-hmm. us and remaining relevant. Mm-hmm. And I I was delighted that they they called that out because I do think that that's been um, particularly important. And 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 frankly part of the driver behind this strategic plan was that you know our our stakeholders were were looking for it got it and and so i am as i say i'm still sort of convinced that it was the, the yeah. way to go but making sure that it that we were both responsive and proactive at yeah. the, at the same time becomes a big part of that that dance
1: yeah and it, i mean it is it is such a balancing act right because um the role that the organization plays the role that you play um you want to lead and and to lead effectively you have to be listening yeah. right you have to be listening and you have to be understanding and 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 so th- this notion of staying current um I mean, how, how do how do you think about that? How does the organization um, think about staying current and understanding? I mean, the the macro trends, the technology trends, um, you know, and and in so many different places in the world.
0: Well, that's why these priority markets right. have been have been very helpful. I mean, the 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 good news, you know, and I put big big uh, air quotes around that, is that you know we've we've been looking at what the barriers mm-hmm. are to women's financial access and that's mm-hmm. that's really what it's all about mm-hmm. unfortunately fortunately they are very similar our target markets are quite different from each other and they all have different societal and cultural norms that that um you know are are quite unique one mm-hmm. to the other but things like you know there are 300 million fewer cell phones owned by women than men. Mm-hmm. Women are 10 percent less likely to have um, mobile mobile access. That are you know those are those are an absolutely Im- essential currency to joining the formal mm-hmm. economy today. And unfortunately, it's the same in all of the markets that right. we're working in. there. are women's access to. Digital literacy and financial literacy, just an awareness of, of what is available to them. You know, I loved what you said about, you know, the, the need to listen. Um, you know, sometimes when we're out doing our, our customer research, mm-hmm. it's so clear that we are the first people that ever asked some mm. of these women, you know, what would you want right. from a financial institution? And the thing that I'm always just – its always tickles me and it's such a pleasure is, you know, I had this woman who was a factory worker in, in India uh, that we were looking to to see how their financial needs might be different from a woman entrepreneur. She was a salaried worker. And she described perfectly – what a health insurance policy would look like. I want something that I can pay a little bit every month so that when my child is sick, mm-hmm. I have the money. She didn't know what that was called. She mm-hmm. didn't, didn't have the, the vocabulary to call it insurance, but she was very clear about what she wanted and why she wanted it and what she was willing to pay for it. And, and so that is really one of the, the most wonderful things about the job is that we get to listen to what women really need and then try to translate that yeah. um, for the institutions that can offer those services.
1: Yeah. and i mean given given your network and given the partners um and and how much learning you have access to um what are some of the steps that you take to try to make that learning and that knowledge um accessible to different markets different geographies etc
0: Yeah. Knowledge management right Right. now is, you know, sort of job one on everybody's list because there is so much that we're that we're learning. And now that we've made it so explicit that that dissemination and and advocacy is a big, big part of what we're doing. I mean, one thing that we we do um, to to put in a bit of a plug Uh um, every other year we bring all of our partners, as well as, you know, policymakers and academics and other financial institutions that are not necessarily partners yet, um, together for uh, making finance work for women. It's mm-hmm. a, a summit that we we hold, as I say, every other year. Um, October 22nd and 23rd, just a couple weeks from now, we'll be in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, we are selling tickets at an incredible rate. So I'm excited that we may be up to four, so 400 people. Hot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, but no, we're very excited about um, about bringing everybody together. Even since two years ago when we were in, in Tanzania, what has taken place technologically, particularly in the fintech space, mm-hmm. has been super exciting. And we were just delighted. Um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has one of the best fintech festivals, biggest fintech festivals um, globally. They were really struggling to get good entrance in the financial inclusion space mm-hmm. and particularly anything that had to do with women.
1: And you were like, it. I might know a couple. And a couple so people.
0: they kind of outsourced that yeah. part of the, the festival. I am pleased to say we had 93 applications from 36 countries. 51 of them had women in the C-suite. Mm-hmm. And the the Monetary Authority was so thrilled with the um, the quality of our applications. Two of our winners that will decide in in uh, Singapore. So if you're in the audience, you get a vote. Um, will go on to the fintech festival's pitch day um, a month later, and that's a significant financial prize and support from uh, a whole range of other. Um, corporates and and policy folks. Um, so we think fintech is, has a lot of opportunity to leapfrog yeah. some of the more traditional barriers that women have found, but we also want to make sure that consumer protection, um, sure. that... Can really really hurt people who may not have the same level of literacy um if they get in too deep with a with a financial service, so we're very excited about the potential though
1: all right so that um and again just to to underscore that that's the making finance work for women's summit. Um, being held in Singapore, October twenty second and twenty third. Exactly. Um, and you can you can certainly find more information uh, about about the uh, summit on the web. Um, but as well, the the finalist organizations that you're yeah you're referring yeah yeah to. they're posted exactly. Um, so we're we're coming to the end of our time together here, um, and, and I I kind of want to bring us all the way full circle a little bit if we can. And you know I I, I am sure that in the The times that we live in, that there are a number of listeners out there, whether they're younger listeners or older listeners, um, who are interested in, uh, you know, in advocacy, in reducing barriers um, for women uh, in terms of financial access, in terms of um, inclusion and representation in the workplace um, within society. You know what are some early steps that you'd recommend to them if they want to take the their first steps towards this kind of a career, towards this kind of um, civil work?
0: Well, one really important first step, and it might even be an earlier step than mm-hmm. than you're suggesting, is you know look at the financial service provider that you're working with. Mm-hmm. You know, are there women on their board? Mm-hmm. What? What are their policies for women? Are are these institutions that are actively serving women? Um, you know, women currently control, you know, some phenomenal percentage of, of wealth and are on track globally to control a greater percentage mm-hmm. of global wealth mm-hmm. than men. Mm-hmm. And yet... Something like 69% of women who have um, financial advisors are dissatisfied with them, feel they are not listened to. I had a very senior um, wealth management executive at a a bank that will not be named um, tell me that they had huge turnover when a husband died. In the widow saying, you know, that financial advisor never spoke to me, mm-hmm. never thought that I was going to be the inheritor of the wealth, never thought I was going to be the client. And they, they leave to go find somebody who talks to them. So I, I'd say maybe even before you start advocating, mm-hmm. look in your own backyard. And particularly if you're a woman, are you being well served by your financial institution? And if you're not, either switch or stay and fight and get them to make changes. Uh, thanks, Marilyn. <laughs>
1: I want to thank you for joining us. Um, How can someone listening find out more about Women's World Banking?
0: Oh, please come on our our newly designed website. We're so proud of it. womensworldbanking.org, no apostrophe. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.